Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. If you're just joining us for the first time, thanks for being here. If you're a regular, also thanks for being here. In this episode, the tragedy of Turkey and Syria. Beyond the number of people killed and left homeless, politics is rearing its ugly head. The U.S. and now the U.S. and Canada are shooting down flying objects out of the sky, including three just this past weekend. Are they all Chinese spy balloons? 21 attorneys general, actually 22 attorneys general, including New York's formidable Letitia James, are asking a Texas judge to reject efforts to ban an abortion drug nationwide. Russia is bombarding Ukraine's Donbass region, seemingly trying to get ahead of all those weapons the West is sending to the country. And what's this? There are predictions that electric car prices will fall to the level of gas-powered vehicles by the end of this year. Surprising? Let's get started. The number of deaths is staggering. Over 30,000 and continuing to rise. Sure to rise. The earthquakes that rocked Turkey and Syria have begun to have serious political ramifications in both countries. In Turkey, the anger increases with each passing day. People are asking questions about the slow response of the nation's government, and just as importantly, about the shoddy construction that led to the massive collapse of buildings near the quake's epicenter. In fact, the government has begun detaining dozens of building contractors as investigations have started in building code violations. Turkey's building codes were put in place after a devastating earthquake in 1999, and this one, according to the government, is even worse. Public anger is aimed directly at contractors and developers who allegedly cut corners in building many of the structures that in some cases collapsed on themselves. One builder was even charged with involuntary manslaughter. There are questions about whether that charge will stick. A few have either left Turkey or tried to do so immediately after the quake. This is a big political problem for Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who faces an election in May. He may be the person the public blames both for the slow response and the slipshod materials and construction that led to the staggering number of building collapses. To be clear, the severity of the quake could have led to the collapses no matter how reinforced the buildings were. Yet if you think back less than two years ago, similar questions about shoddy construction combined with erosion led to the collapse of a condo in Miami. Some of you may remember this. It killed 98 people. One hates to generalize, but too often corners get cut in construction of buildings, not just in Turkey, not just in Miami, around the world. Financial pressures, or in some cases, just plain greed, come together with the attitude of, well, it'll never happen here. But still, it does. And while we know about the devastation in Turkey, we know far less about what's going on in Syria. Published reports say, however, that the civil war that's raged in that country for decades is seriously hampering relief efforts. The numbers of deaths, according to published reports, could well increase dramatically, even more than Turkey or faster than Turkey, as relief efforts kick into high gear. It's a grim reminder 
that when Mother Nature is stacked against politics, ideology, or even war, Mother Nature usually wins. And speaking of war, Russia is apparently ramping up their efforts to nail down gains made in the Donbass region of Ukraine. They reportedly fired about 100 drones, missiles, and rockets at targets in the region, just as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky returned from a three-day trip to Europe. Published reports say Ukraine's next move will be to try and take back Crimea, which the Russians have occupied since 2014. In the meantime, the grinding war of attrition continues. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the West has remained supportive of President Zelensky, but even in the wake of his European tour, Western Europe in particular have been slow to give him all that he's asking for in the form of weapons, missiles, etc., etc. Could be that's because they're wavering in their belief that Ukraine can actually win this war. Are they wavering? Certainly Russia's Putin has shown no signs of retreating or even holding peace talks. There was a telling component to the news that the other week that Western Europe and the U.S. would be sending sophisticated weapons to aid the Ukrainian war effort. It will take, at the outside, four years to train the Ukrainian military to use the fighters and tanks that the West has agreed to send. And keep in mind that despite the warm words coming from Britain and the EU, there's still an aura of caution. Zelensky has tried his best to convince NATO that his fight is their fight. Not sure he's convinced everyone. It's amazing sometimes to see these different countries, and Zelensky did a whirlwind tour. And by the way, he also spoke to both the British Parliament and the EU Parliament. And the words were warm. We support you. We support you but they're only going to go so far. And that has to do as much with politics as it does with concerns about the Ukrainian military. They've set, the Ukrainians have, a high bar as to what will end this conflict. And I'm not sure the West wants to look four years down the road and say they're still where they are today. Up next, President Biden has now ordered four flying objects shot down. And on the last three, he got Canadian, or actually the last two, he got Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to sign on. Nice, since one of those objects was in fact shot down over Canada. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. So what's going on in the skies over the U.S. and Canada? No sooner is a Chinese balloon shot down off the Atlantic coast than three more unidentified flying objects were shot down, one near Alaska, one over Michigan, one other in Canada. In both cases, and actually all three cases, American Sidewinder missiles were used just as they were in the case of the Chinese balloon. At the time of this podcast, None of the last three objects have been identified. That may take a while, since they were shot down in some cases in remote areas and the troops sent to retrieve them face freezing temperatures and short daylight hours. 
One thing is possible, however. Could one or all of these objects actually be the UFOs we hear so much about in science fiction? Probably not, but what are you going to do? The government calls them unidentified aerial phenomena. They don't call them UFOs. I wonder why. There have been 144 of them from 2004 to 2021. The government is very secret squirrel about most of them, which is why we may not get the full story about all three of the objects that were shot down. They may be surveillance devices from a country other than China, maybe even an ally. Maybe we'll even find out, or maybe we won't. I mean, 144 UFOs, unidentified objects, most of them, I would guess, and I'm just guessing here, I have no expertise on this at all, but many of them may be surveillance, actually apparatus, that are up in the air and that are being launched by allies, friends of the American government. And some of them may not even have any kind of bad intentions. You never know. And we may never know. Up next, 22 attorneys general from across the country are asking one judge in Texas not to ban the abortion drug Mifepristone. If he does, it could lead to a nationwide ban. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Thanks again for staying with us. Mifepristone is the drug which, when combined with misoprostol, provides a safe, effective way to end a pregnancy. And by the way, it took me a long time to figure out how to pronounce both of those drugs. Now, an anti-abortion group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is suing the Food and Drug Administration in an effort to get Mifepristone banned nationwide. A federal judge in Texas is hearing the case, which has daunting implications for a woman's right to choose. The group wants the FDA to pull regulatory approval for the drug, which goes back to the year 2000. There are a couple of problems. First, the judge hearing the case was appointed by Donald Trump. Second, although the Justice Department says it would appeal a ban if the case goes to the Supreme Court, it will go before the same nine justices who overturned Roe v. Wade. I don't want to say I told you so, but the anti-abortion lobby will not stop until either they get a nationwide ban on abortions or court stops them in their tracks. Even states like New York, where the Attorney General, the formidable Letitia James, has signed on to this petition, even states like New York, where abortion is legal, would be effective. 54% of all abortions where how it was done was measured or reported, 54% are medicated as opposed to procedural. That's as of 2020, the last time they actually took that data. The group that brought the case acknowledges it is not composed of medical professionals. Yet it argues the FDA didn't adequately address the safety of mifepristone. This attempt raises a few questions. Why would a court, any court, have the authority 
to override the FDA? It's a good question. Couldn't the agency ignore the court? Maybe. And you might end up with a protracted battle. Regardless, the fact that this is even coming up underscores the necessity of enshrining the right of a woman to choose in federal law. Rose, Roe v. Wade was supposed to be settled law. Even a couple of current justices on the Supreme Court said so during their confirmation hearings. Yet when the time came, they reneged. It's either that, or as I've said before, a mass migration of women from states that restrict abortion to those that do not. Now, I'm not crazy enough to think that's actually going to happen, even though mass migrations have a history in the United States. The migration of blacks from south to north, the migration of Oklahomans or people from the Dust Bowl out to California. There are mass migrations in American history. I'm not sure that a large number of women would migrate to states where abortion is legal. Some women never even think about abortion. So it, it might be a, just a little bit difficult. However, it's going to take something seismic, rest assured, to get these people to see sense. And finally, could it be? Could electric cars match gas cars on price before the end of this year? An article in the New York Times says a combination of circumstances have come together to make it quite possible. As many of you know, electric vehicles have cost a good deal more than their gas-powered siblings for a long time now. All of a sudden, electric car prices are no longer causing sticker shock in buyers. One factor is that several car makers and battery suppliers are opening new factories, increasing capacity by a lot. There are also government incentives to buy electric, which have been around for a little while now. Electric cars are also less costly to maintain, and electricity, surprise, surprise, is cheaper than gas. The fall in prices is startling and very recent. At the end of last year, an electric car averaged more than $61,000, compared to just under $50,000 for all cars and trucks. Now, show you how surprising and how recent all this is, Ford has even cut the price of its most popular electric vehicle and the most popular electric vehicle in the country, the Mustang Mach-E. The tax credits for electric vehicles under the Inflation Reduction Act have a ceiling, and some car makers have cut prices so much that it turns out that they are trying to make sure that their stock qualifies. In other words, they're cutting the price so it's under the ceiling to get the tax incentive. The price of components used to make batteries has also fallen as well, though the price of lithium remains stubbornly high, even though it's dropped by about 20%. All these factors taken together mean you're likely to see more articles about how electric cars and trucks have flaws that make them inferior to gas-powered ones. Disgruntled electric car owners do op-eds about how they have so much trouble finding charge points and the like. It doesn't look like they're working at all. And a lot of, uh, not automakers, but gas stations and other places, municipalities, are actually 
building charging points at a startling rate to accommodate the electric vehicles that are now on the road. And a lot of ads are pushing electric. Now, the oil industry does not take this lying down, nor should anyone expect them to. They have managed to have a hegemony over, with the exception of diesel, obviously, hegemony over motor vehicles in this country and the construction of motor vehicles in this country. A lot of the big automakers were very slow to adapt to electric vehicles. But then when they started seeing Tesla and other manufacturers, independent manufacturers, start making vehicles that sold and sold very well, they had to jump on the bandwagon also. And now you have a plethora of smaller car makers, I mean small compared to the, you know, the big three in America, and they're starting at this point to narrow down the options for gas-powered vehicles as they ramp up their capacity to build electric vehicles. There have been a few cases in the United States where electric vehicle factories have sprung up and gas-powered assembly lines and assembly plants have actually been closed down. And the fact is, when it comes to all the negativity you hear about electric vehicles, a lot of that stuff is paid for by the oil industry, which stands to lose a lot if electric vehicles become the new standard. Let us be clear, no motor vehicle, electric or gas, is perfect. It's simply a question of which one is better for the environment and which one is better for the pocketbook. If electric vehicles become price competitive soon, the answer will be obvious. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.